Hi, I'm Tiki Barber, co-founder of Thusio. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast. We're bringing our past events back to life for you to enjoy. Three-time NBA champion and former NBA coach of the year, Byron Scott joined Yogi Roth in October 2018 for a Thusio Live and Unfiltered conversation to recount his transition from a championship player to an NBA coach. Scott also discusses his unique position of being both a teammate and coach of the late Kobe Bryant and shares what it was like to see Kobe score 60 points in his final NBA game. Enjoy the interview. Thank you, Coach Scott, for coming here. Uh, what a special night it is to be around somebody like yourself. There's so much to share, and I think so much you're going to be able to relate to to take into your own lives. I want to start with eras, because in sports, sometimes we try to predict them, and then sometimes we live in them, and then we look back on them. So Showtime, was it predicted? You clearly lived it, and looking back on it, where was it at its best in your eyes? I don't know if it was predicted, but I definitely lived it. Um, you know, when I look back on Showtime, the one thing I think we all tend to forget when you're in the moment, when you're playing any type of sport uh, and you're going through some of the things that we went through and winning you know, championships and things of that nature, you don't um, really, really appreciate it until it's over. You know, when you can sit back and kind of think about some of the things that you were able to accomplish is when you really start to think about you know, what a great team that we really had. So when I look back on that time in my life, playing with the Showtime Lakers, uh, playing with Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Cooper, AC, I'm gonna name them all, just, just so you guys know. AC <laughs> Green, Kirk Rampus, uh, Mitch Kupchak, let me see, uh, Wes Matthews, Ronnie Lester. Norm? No, I didn't play with Norm. Wait a minute. See, see okay. <laughs> now you messed up. And, me, and, and you my man, but you, you messed up. Now, you guys, you guys do remember that I was traded for Norm Nixon, right? <laughs> so when I got to the Lakers, I got a lot of grief uh, about being traded for a very popular guy named Norm Nixon. And so when I got to the first practice, uh, Magic Johnson and, and Michael Cooper weren't the nicest guys to me in the world. They were, they were kind of trying to put me through the ringer. And it took about the third practice where Coop hit me with an elbow, and I said, okay, that's, that's it. That's the last elbow I'm taking. You know, next time you throw an elbow, we, we just going to have to fight. And Coop, in his normal high voice, was like, oh, you think you tough now? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm from Inglewood. I, I don't, I'm not backing down to anybody. And if you throw another elbow, it's on. And Magic told me later, he said, listen, that was our way of testing you. We wanted to make sure you had heart and that you would fit in with this group. So it, it took me a little while, I guess, to get going. But that era of basketball, I, I still look back at it, Yogi, and I think it's still one of the best times in basketball because of a couple of reasons. Number one, because of the way we played the game. And number two, because of the rivalries. There are no real rivalries anymore. Nobody really hates their opponents. We hated the Celtics. And hopefully we don't have any Celtic you know, guys in here. And if we do, I don't want to offend you. We do have one. Okay, there you He's pointing at you, so I guess you are. You didn't raise your hand for a reason. I understand that too. But you know what? We, we hated them. They hated us. That makes for great rivalries. It makes for great basketball, obviously. And at the end of the day, when it was all said and done years later, we hated them because they were just like us. They wanted to win. 
you know, and they didn't, they didn't care about the name on the back of the jersey. It was all about the name on the front of the jersey. So for me, that era of basketball uh, to this day still was probably uh, the glory days of uh, the NBA. One of my favorite phrases in sports is form versus essence, right? The form is the forum, the arena you play in. The essence is what you just described on you guys and the Celtics. So I want to go back. You moved from Utah to Los Angeles with the forum as your backdrop. And was it, was it Darby Park? Yeah. That, is that where you kind of cultivated <laughs> yeah. your essence yeah. to be able to stand up to Michael Cooper, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. How did you formulate that, moving to Los Angeles and dealing with that as a youngster? Well, I had no choice. You know, when I, when I came to California and moved to Los Angeles, I, I first lived on 75th and Figueroa, which was right in the heart of all the, the hoodlums and the gangs and all that stuff. So I had, to, uh, I had to get tough real quick. You know, if I didn't, I was just going to take a beating every time, you know, uh, I came home from school. So you're after a few beatings, you started to learn how to protect yourself a little bit better. And we moved from there to Inglewood. You know, so I had pretty much got used to uh, the Los Angeles life as far as growing up and understanding that it was uh, gang invested, you know, infested areas that I was growing up in. And I, I just started to really take to sports big time. You know, I mean, every sport I played, if it was football season, I played football. If it was basketball season, I played basketball. If it was baseball season, I played baseball. So whatever was going on was the thing that I was going to do to try to stay out of trouble, number one. That, that was the biggest reason that I tried to play sports is just to stay out of the streets and stay out of trouble. Uh, but coming from Utah was a whole different world. You know, the one good thing about coming from Utah, so just so you guys don't get it twisted, I, I came from Utah, I was six years old when I, my dad said, you know, you need to move him to California to play basketball. So he saw at six years old what he thought was somebody who had potential to play basketball. And so my mom uh, and my stepdad moved me to L.A. and, you know, I've been here ever since and don't plan on going anywhere. I think that's really interesting because your dad, JC All-American, right, I think in yeah. the 50s, yeah. And you credit a lot of your work ethic, which I'm assuming was developed in the playground at Darby Park, to your stepdad, from what I've read, where he had two jobs, was working all hours of the night, and you recognize that. So if you can, take us inside the mind of an eight-year-old, witnessing that, and then going out and being like, I've kind of fallen in love with this orange circular ball on this cement, and all of a sudden, boom, you're, you're pretty good at it. Yeah, when I, when I was eight, nine years old, I mean, I just you know took to basketball, and didn't have a basketball hoop in my backyard, you know. So what I did is I had a uh, big trash can that I put on a patch of cement that we had in the backyard, and I filled it with leaves, and that would be my hoop. You know, if I got me a basketball, and I was just shooting that hoop. You know, that was my hoop. So it was a little bit bigger than a hoop, which made me think I was a real good shooter at nine years old. But it was something that worked for me. But being able to see my dad for about four or five years, go to work, uh, come home go to sleep for a couple hours, get up, get dinner, and then take off to his second job, uh, just told me how it, it, you know, he, he really told me that if you really want to you know, do something in life, you got to work hard at it. And that was instilled in me at a very young age. So when I hit 12 years old and I won my first trophy, you know, I'm coming home with this little bitty trophy. It's no bigger than this mic, but I was so proud of it, you know, because it was the first trophy I ever won. And I walked up the, up the stairs to go in the house, and my mom and dad are going out for, for a very rare d dinner and a movie night. And my, uh, my dad said, oh, that's good. You got a trophy. I was like, yeah, I got me a first trophy, Pops. You know, and my mom said, you know, being a mom, my baby got a trophy. You know, my baby won a trophy. And my dad said, so what are you going to do? What are you going to be in life? 
And I said, I'm going to be a professional basketball player. And again, my mom was so happy. You know, my baby going to play basketball, you know. And my dad said, well, what if you don't make it? I said, I'm going to be a professional baseball player. <laughs> so sports obviously was something that I thought I was pretty good at. And I thought I could, uh, you know, get a better life and get them to a better life if I was able to make it out of, the, uh, out of Inglewood. I love that. Uh, there's so much in that. You make your way out. And you don't go to UCLA. They have a ch coaching change. You don't go to SC for whatever reason. <laughs> you go to ASU. And Barry Bonds is there. And all these talented athletes. And, and you read about you, and they talk about, hey, man, it was you're a better athlete than the running backs. You're a better athlete than the baseball players. You're the best athlete on campus, but very shy. What was the inner flame like for you if your outward projection was maybe a little dimmer than how you perform when you're on the floor? Well, you know, you know, when you're on the basketball floor, just like the football field or the baseball field, that's your, that's your safe haven. That's where you can really be who you are, really be yourself. But um, coming from where I grew up, yeah, I was pretty shy. I just kind of – and I, I wouldn't even say I was shy, to be honest with you, Yogi. I was just protective. You know, I had barriers that I just kind of put in front of myself because of uh, where I grew up. You just didn't trust a whole lot of people. You know, so I was quiet, and everybody perceived that to be shy, but it wasn't shy. It was more of, I was just pr protecting myself uh, from people that I didn't know. You know, I was very leery of people that came by me and started speaking and wanted to do this and do that. Uh, you know, I had trust issues big time, you know, when I was growing up because I just didn't trust a whole lot of people. So when I get to Arizona State, and the only reason I went to Arizona, well, it's a few reasons, but the only reason I didn't stay in-state and go to UCLA or USC is because I wanted to get out and be on my own. You know, I wanted to get away from home, but I didn't want to go too far from home. You know, so the West Coast was still something that I wanted to do, but Arizona State was perfect as far as I could get back home if I had to uh, in a crisis or an emergency. Uh, but I was yet far enough away where I could still be my own man and learn on my own and make my own mistakes and grow from those mistakes as well. So um, I, I just thought Arizona State was perfect, you know, for me. And uh, the coaching staff and a couple of the players were from L.A., so that made it even that much more inviting. And once I took a visit there, I was like, no, I'm sold. And I told the players, Johnny Nash and Sam Williams, who was my recruiters, and I told them on the night they were taking me back, uh, back to the hotel, and it was about four in the morning because they kept me out all night partying. Um, I said, yeah, I'm coming here. And they was like, all right, cool. And so, you know, I kept my word and made, made sure that I went to Arizona State. So you have this brilliant career in college. And then you get drafted by, was it San Diego Clippers? San Diego Clippers. Get traded, as we referenced earlier. Um, when did you start to trust? Was it between high school and the pros? Or were you still that way when you got around Magic and that crew? I was still that way until my rookie year. You know, it, it still took me a little while. Uh, and I think um, with the way that they didn't accept me from the, from the get-go, you know, made it even harder for me to trust. Uh, you know, but my mom was, my mom was unbelievable. She was always the, uh, the optimist, you know, every time I would come home. That, the good thing about being able to play at home at that time as well is all the stuff that I was going through during practice, all the negative, you know, negative stuff with the players not liking me because I was traded for Norm or not accepting me, I was able to go home. And my mom was like, baby, don't worry. They're going to be all right. They're going to accept you. You know, they, they just, just give them time. You know, she, and she always did it so nonchalantly, you know, that made me feel like, okay, you maybe, you know, Maybe mom is right, you know. So the trust issues stayed around for a little while until Magic, I think, came and kind of cleared everything up. 
and told me, you know, the main reasons why they put me through what they put me through. And then I think our first road trip that we went on when he called me and said, let's go have dinner and let's go to a movie uh, is when I started to open up a little bit more. What movie did you see and what did I he tell no you? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, no, he didn't have to tell me nothing. It was just the fact that he called me and said, meet us downstairs, Rook. You know, me, you, and Cooper going to dinner, and then we're going to go to a movie. And I don't know nothing about what we did. It was just the fact that I'm sitting there going, you know, I'm sitting here with Magic and Coop. You know, they call me, you know, and that's pretty cool. And then, you know, the next day it was, uh, you know, sit over here on the bus. And everything started to be just us three, you know. And, and we all of a sudden, you know, six, seven months later, you know, they're call, calling us the Three Musketeers because everywhere we go, you see not one, not two, but all three of us. And when they started to really accept me then is where I really started to have the trust and the belief that, first of all, that I belonged in the league and that these guys had my best interests at heart. Curious when you played, you know, you win Rookie of the Year, have a heck of a season. Did you talk to your pops and your mom about, you know, that dream you said when you came home that day with that little trophy? I, I talked to them as soon as I got drafted. You know, as soon as I got drafted by the, uh, by the Clippers, uh, I told Dad, I told you. <laughs> And he was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Let's, let's see how long you play, you know. <laughs> you know. So he, he was still one of those that, yeah, you, you got drafted, but that don't mean nothing. And which is true as far as I'm concerned, because I tell players today, you know, all the time that, you know, getting drafted is the easy part. You know, playing 10 years, 12 years, 14 years in the NBA, that's the tough part. Because you, you, you constantly got somebody coming after you. Somebody wants your job. So you got to be on your game. You got to keep improving each and every year. And that's what I tried to do every, each and every year. I tried to bring something new to my game to get better so I could keep that starting job, you know, with the Lakers. Did you understand how unique it was? And we talked a little bit and reflected off the top about Showtime, but you won one championship. Now here you go. I mean, you have this litany of players that you referenced earlier. When you're in it, what is the, the competitive moment like? Because I think all of us in our craft, maybe we're not known as Showtime, but we have, you know, our core group in our own business. We're, we're our own Showtime, right? We, we roll, we ride out, we keep showing up and killing it. For you guys, did the bar keep rising or was the standard just at one place and we just had to keep meeting it every year? No, it kept rising. You, it, you know, my first year we lost to the Celtics in the finals. Uh, and we really felt the best team didn't win that championship. We felt that um, we got out of our character as a basketball team because soon as Kirk Rampus, I don't know if you guys remember this, Kirk Rampus was taken out by Kevin McHale, just clothesline. Today's basketball, he would have been kicked out the league. You know, it's gotten that soft, excuse me, but um, I'm still hardcore. I'm still, you know, old school, but it's gotten softer. But. You know, when he took him out the air like that and clotheslined him, it changed our whole direction of the way we wanted to play because then we were always thinking about getting him back instead of playing Laker basketball. So that, that first year of losing it and then coming back the next year, you know, and beating him in the championship series and being the first L.A. team to ever beat a Boston Celtic teams in the finals was very satisfying because the Jerry Wests and the Will Chamberlains and, the, you know, Elgin Baylor, those, those guys never were able to accomplish that. So we got the monkey off all those guys back. And it made us feel good because we were able to come back and play their style of basketball, so to speak, but also play our style, which was, you know, let's get up and down the floor. But if they want to be aggressive and play physical, let's play physical and be aggressive as well. Uh, and it's amazing how it's just like in school when you're beating up the bully, you know, all of a sudden they start calling us cheap shots. You know, these guys are playing dirty. Well, that's the same thing you guys were doing last year. You know, you were hitting us with elbows and pushing and all that stuff. 
Now we're doing the same thing, but we're continuing to play our style of basketball, and now it's dirty. You know, so for us, each and every year, we tried to set the bar higher. You know, so when we won the championship, it was, all right, come back and let's win it again. So we always felt that um, when we got to the finals, if we didn't win it, it was, it was a, a lost cause. It wasn't a good season. I think getting the monkey off your back is such a great phrase that's utilized in sports. We remember Steve Young, he wins the Super Bowl, right? He tears it literally off his right, back, right. right? You talked about yours, um, but you guys won the second one. And I'm curious if this was the get the monkey off your back moment or if this was just you guys showcasing your skill set. I want to roll a clip here of getting to know uh, your team in a completely different way, I think, for the entire planet. Messing with me on my rapping skills now. Okay, all right. <laughs> did you rehearse or was that one take? I mean, how did that what happen there? No, we did much more than one take. I mean, it, it wasn't basketball, so it took us a little while to kind of get that together. We had some guys that were much better rappers than others. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the great uh, Bill Dukes was the producer. And it, it, we, first of all, we had a lot of fun, but we were there for about five hours trying to get this thing right. And every time we thought we had it right, Bill said, all right, let's do one more take. Let's make sure we, you know, we have at least a couple to look at. But, uh, you know, that, that was just something that we were doing to just try to tell kids, because we were going to a lot of schools, you know, speaking to kids about drugs and, and saying no to drugs and, and, and trying to be better students and better athletes and better people. And, um, you know, we just felt, you know, with the, the type of uh, platform that we had uh, with the Los Angeles Lakers and, and what we meant to the community, that this was something that was extremely important. Yeah. Platform is, is such a great term in sports, right? Now it's my brand, right? And, and everybody's brand is on every social media platform and everybody should be elevating it and leveraging it. I totally get all that. But for you guys, you had this brand and there wasn't Twitter, Instagram, there was none of that, it, but there was Showtime and that was the greatest brand in that era, for a decade, and it continues to live on. Everybody, it's Showtime back, Showtime's back. I mean, you hear it in, in, in LA all the time. I'm curious for you guys, when the brand really took off, did you recognize how big it was? I mean, you're doing fun videos, but in your lens, maybe it was, hey, to give back to schools. But for the, the rest of us, it was like, damn, Lakers are huge. Did, did you know you were that global? No, I, I didn't. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, some of our, our other guys did. I, I really didn't, to be honest with you. I just thought, uh, you know, Magic said the word Showtime one day, you know, you know, come watch Showtime. And it just stuck. And, and being the leader of Showtime, because he was Showtime when he had the ball in his hand, it was something special. So, uh, you know, just him to put that free, he should have, he should have, you know, patent that. I don't know if he ever did or not, but he should have patent that. Uh, but it was just something that I think just kind of happened organically. And boom, like you said, 20, 30 years later, it still uh, is a phrase that is used with us that have played in this game. You know, like you said, you know, when people introduce me, it's uh, Byron Scott, three-time champion with the Showtime Lakers. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. But, you know, I just thought it was three-time champions with the Lakers. But, you know, everybody wants to put the Showtime in there, which is uh, – I think kind of ironic, but, you know, we just kind of roll with it. But I don't think any of us thought it would be this big. 
you know, even when I was coaching at SC, it was when the era where we were winning championship after championship. And we were saying, hey, we're Showtime point, part two. <laughs> you know I mean? It, we we love that side of it. Uh, but like championship teams, you guys kept showing up. And I think that was the best part. As the brand got bigger and Showtime got larger, you went back to the championship. And I want to play a game or a clip from a game that you played in the following year in your third championship and dive into that because this is one of the most epic games in the history of the NBA. You've had great performances, you've competed against great performances, you've coached great performances, we'll get to that in a little bit. But what was that like for you guys on that team, seeing what was happening, knowing the Magic-Isaiah rivalry, and knowing what was at stake? Well, I mean, you know, obviously afterwards you get the chance to kind of uh, sit there and admire it, but when you're in the moment, you know, you, you, know I, you almost felt you wanted to take Isaiah's head off or something to get him to stop, you know. I used to come in and say, look, Coop, he scored, you know, 27 points in that quarter, 18 of them was on you. I, I just, I wasn't guarding him. I just know it was you that was on him most of that, you know, most of that time. But no, when you're going through something like that, you know, you do kind of marvel at it, but you also are saying, man, we got to stop this guy somehow uh, because he was doing it on a terrible ankle. But it also shows the heart of Isaiah Thomas too. And you got to admire that. You know, I mean, that guy, that guy was a warrior, you know, one of the best small uh, point guards that we've ever had in this league. You know, I mean, he, he put on a show that time. I think in sports, great coaches can always recognize who's going to be a great coach among their players. Read about Pat Riley saying, hey, um, you, you might want to coach a team, run an organization. And you said, no way. Ain't no way I'm coaching, which is what, what most players say. And then you go to the Pacers with Larry Brown, who was at UCLA when you came out of high school. And he said, hey, I think you should coach. Was that when it became cemented in your eyes of like, OK, when I'm done playing, I'm just going to transition and here we go with this career? Or did you have to sit back and think like, all right, I know what that life is like. Do I want to continue? Because I just dedicated a large portion of my existence to this game and what basketball demands of you. I had to sit back and think about it. I mean, first of all, uh, Pat Riley, when he said that I was 26 years old, I was in my fifth, you know, fifth year in the league. And he said, you know, one day you're going to go through this as a coach. You have to, you know, do I said, man, you crazy. I ain't never coaching. You know, he said, yeah, you are. I said, no, I won't. You know, I mean, we, we're sitting there almost arguing over this. And I said, no, never. You know, and so, you know, six years later, you know, I'm with Larry Brown uh, in Indiana. And uh, Larry would do, Larry was very unique. He would ask me in practice, you know, hey, B, how would you guys guard this pin down? How would you guys guard this, uh, this double stack? How would you double team and where would you double team from? So I would always tell him, well, this is what we would do, Larry. Well, how would you rotate out of the double team if you're coming from the nail? I said, it depends on where the ball goes. So you have to have players that are pretty smart. If the ball goes over my head, I'm always going opposite. And he was like, all right, let's try that in practice. So we would try it. And we had a very smart team. So guys would get it you know, pretty easily. And then one day at practice, he said, B, I think you would be a great coach if you ever decided to coach. And it hit me when I got home. I said, wait a minute, I had Pat Riley say I would be a good coach. I had Larry Brown said I would be that. They see something in me that I don't see. So I started taking notice. Uh, I, I started 
keeping me a little journal and writing down things that I like, things that I didn't like. Uh, a lot of stuff that I learned from Pat Riley, I would write down on both ends of the floor. Stuff I was learning from Larry Brown, I would write down. And I would always tell myself, if I do get an opportunity, uh, one thing I will be is prepared. You know, because I've had these two guys who, to me, are two of the best coaches that I've coached in the game. So you go to Sacramento, and after two years, you're now with the Nets as a head coach. I mean, that happened pretty fast. Yeah. Some people in the audience, we get thrust into leadership positions, and we ask for it, but maybe we're not ready for it. Yeah. How did you develop or share your philosophy? Was it in real time, or were you dialed in? Did you have your journal and, okay, here we go. This is how it's going to happen when I become a head coach. Yeah, I was dialed in. You know, I was ready. Even when I met Rod Thorne uh, in Jersey, you know, when he wanted to enter me for the head coaching position in New Jersey, I was dialed in. I had everything, you know, uh, down that I wanted to do uh, on both ends of the floor. I had you know, four seconds left on the clock, last second shot, six seconds, eight seconds, 10 seconds. So I had everything that, that I thought I needed. Uh, I knew every single player that was on that team, and I knew how I was going to position them to be successful. So when I went in for that meeting, I was set. I was ready. Um, and then getting the head coaching job, I was just kind of running on fumes because of everything that I had learned from Raleigh and, and from uh, Coach Brown. So the transition for me was pretty easy. You know, the only thing I had to get used to the first month was the hours that you have to put in. Because as a player, you know, you come to practice, if you got 11 to 1 practice, I would get there at 10 o'clock. 1.30, 2 o'clock, I'm gone. I'm home. You know, as a coach, you know, you got 11 o'clock practice, you get in there probably 7, 8 o'clock. You're getting, you know, together with your coaches probably an hour or two before practice. You're going over film work to get ready for practice. Uh, you know, you got your practice plan already laid out. Then you go through practice. Then you go after practice to look at the tape of practice. You got to deal with the media. It's, it's, it was a totally different, you know, atmosphere that I was used to. So that was the biggest thing for me was making a transition from player who only had to spend three or four hours, you know, at the gym for practice and everything, as opposed to a coach where I'm going to be there eight hours, nine hours every day. So super dialed in for when you go for that job interview and get that job. You go to two finals, so a hell of a job. Congrats on that. But then you go to New Orleans. I don't think anybody could be dialed in or prepared for Katrina right. and what that did. How did you, as an instinctive athlete, and now a coach who trusts his own instincts. How did you deal with that when all of a sudden that happens and you've got a displaced team, you've got a community that has rallied around your program, and you have to move cities? Right. That, that was tough because of the fact that you, you leave in New Orleans, and, and New Orleans was in shambles at that time. You know, we knew what they were going through, and it's almost like you feel like you're abandoning your city, your hometown. Uh, but so what we decided to do is, you know, we're going to dedicate this season to them. You know, we're going to play for our, you know, for our, um, our New Orleans natives and all the people that are displaced. Uh, we're going to pray for them. Uh, but we're going to go out here and we're going to play every single night for them. And our players bought into it. Our players understood what was going on. Uh, and we went back there to play two games. The NBA made us go back, which was, I thought, fantastic once they got everything kind of cleared up. So we spent a couple of days back in New Orleans. We went to the Ninth Ward to see all the stuff that had happened. You know, I still had a home there, so I went back to my home to make sure it was okay. Um, but our players really kind of rallied around the city, and the city rallied around us. So it, it was a tough situation. Uh, but for us, I, th I thought we made the best of a very tough situation, and we had a, a very good year with a, with a rookie that ended up being rookie of the year in Chris Paul. Yeah, you've coached some pretty talented point guards. Uh, you end up drafting another one when you go to Cleveland. But here you are in a city in New Orleans where the 
community has rallied around you guys, even when you had to go to Oklahoma City to play a season. And then you go to Cleveland, and the heartbeat of the team, a couple days after you get there, says, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. <laughs> yeah, right. Clearly not what I assume you signed up for. But again, I want to go back to the instinctiveness of what do you do when you're in a scenario like that when all of a sudden the script gets completely flipped? You know what? I, I looked at the job in Cleveland and said, listen, it's, it's going to go one of two ways. You're either going to have the best player in the world, you got a chance to win a championship, or he's going to bolt and you got you to rebuild. And either way, you know, hopefully owner, ownership understands that if he leaves, you're starting from ground up again, you know, because you just can't replace him. You know, I'm a little upset at LeBron because when I got there, he left. When I come here a couple of years later, he comes. I'm like, man, we keep missing each other. What's the problem here? You know, but no, he, he's, he's such a tremendous talent that when he left, I knew that we just had to take it one step at a time. Uh, we had to convince our players that, listen, everybody is going to get an opportunity now to kind of shine. And as you know, a lot of those players, they want that opportunity, but they really don't want that opportunity, you know, because that's big shoes to fill. But. The three years in Cleveland, I thought, were, were fun. They were a learning experience. Uh, we, we drafted some really good players, like you said, Kyrie Irving and Tristan Thompson. Uh, you know, they were going to be the backbone of that organization. And then, you know, Kyrie obviously has turned out to be one of the better point guards in this league. But anytime you go through that, tri that type of trans you know, transition, uh, it's going to take some time. And sometimes uh, owners don't have the the time or they're not going to give you the time to get to the to the type of you know, level of basketball that you want to play I can't get the image out of my mind and I don't know if some of you would agree with me in the audience but of the big garbage can filled with leaves <laughs> and you shooting the basketball in it in your backyard in Inglewood and the Lakers facility right around the corner then you get the Lakers job did, did you at least I hope you took a moment to just be like Holy shit, like what just happened here? <laughs> Will you get named the head coach of the Lakers? You had to interview three times first and foremost, which right. that shocked me. Right. But what, what is that moment like for you from a young man who's shooting into leaves to now winning championships there and now you're rocking a suit courtside as a coach? It, it was phenomenal because, you know, as soon as I got into coaching, you know, my first coaching gig with New Jersey and we played the Lakers in the finals, you know, we're, we're just overwhelmed anyway. Our guys, the first game here at Staples Center, I was talking to Eddie Jordan and I looked at him on the bench before, you know, before the tip off even started. We we're going through warmups and I said, we're going to get killed. And he said, why you say that? I said, they, they are going, look at them. I said, they, they're like deers in the headlight, you know. They see Jack, they see all the, you know, all the actors and actresses around, and they see the hype. I said, we're about to get blown out. Sure enough, we were down by 30 so fast, you know. And then they, then they start relaxing and saying, oh, you know, it is just basketball. We got to play. But they just had two monsters that we just couldn't deal with. We couldn't deal with Shaq, and we couldn't deal with Kobe. Uh, from that point on, we played pretty good basketball. But... I said, even after that series was over, I said, one day I would love to coach the Lakers. I would love to go back to the team that is my, my hometown team, the team that I've loved for so many years, the team that you know, I bleed purple and gold, the team I played for. And so to get that call and then finally get the job, uh, you're right, I had to take a moment. You know, I had to just sit down and say, wow, you know, I, get a, you know, I get to coach my dream job, which is coaching the Los Angeles Lakers. Was it hard for you to not try to bring back Showtime? Or did you want to recapture the era that you played in when now all of a sudden you're the voice and the mouthpiece and the face of a franchise? No, it wasn't hard to not try to bring it back because you don't have the players to try to bring it back, you know? And I, and I got to coach what I got. 
And I still wanted to get up and down the floor because I think anytime we can get in the open floor, you got an opportunity to score. Uh, when you have to set up, it just makes it so much harder unless you got the horses that you can just say, just give him the ball and let him go. So I, I just tried to coach the type of uh, players that I had. I didn't try to recreate Showtime, you know, because I think that was been a disservice to the guys that we were coaching. And a lot of young guys, they don't want to hear that. You know, they don't want to hear, uh, we, okay, we, we, we know you played in Showtime. We don't want to hear all that, you know. So I, I didn't want to throw that in their face. That's the last thing I wanted to do is I want them to try to get their own identity and, and, and for us to create our own identity as well. You're a player. You come back for Kobe's rookie year. You described your rookie year, mm -hmm. getting a couple elbows from some of your teammates. From his rookie year to then his final year, that, that's a pretty dramatic arc. Did you see it day one? Did you think he'd be one of the greats? There's a video out, uh, Yogi, of me sitting with Kobe on the court after practice. And uh, I think it was NBA Entertainment that was doing this piece. And I said in the video, I said, mark my words, this guy is going to be unbelievable. I said, because I see him every day. I see his work ethic. And he started joking. He said, yeah, I got, I, I got him a couple of dollars that I, you know, that I slipped to him. But yeah, I saw it. I, I saw it very early. Uh, I would come to practice early because at that time, you know, I'm 34, 35. I need a little time to get get myself together, you know, get in the hot pool and all that stuff and get a little massage and all that. So I, I would come to the forum, you know, 11 o'clock practice. I would be there at 9, 9, 15, 9, 30. And there were numerous occasions where I would come and the, the court's dark. There's no there's no lights on, but I would hear a ball bounce and it would be Kobe out there shooting. And, you know, the last time that I did it, I just kind of stood there for about 10 seconds and I just shook my head. I went back in and I said, Gary, you know, Gary Vidi, our trainer, I said, how long has he been here? He said, man, he was here before I got here. He was waiting on me to come in to open up the locker room and everything. And I said, well, tell him to turn the lights on at least. And he's like, nah, he's fine. <laughs> he's 18. He don't need lights. He can see, you know. <laughs> but you can see it very early that his uh, determination and his work ethic was second to none. And I would ask him, I said, what do you want to accomplish in this league? He said, I want to be one of the greatest players that ever play in this league. And I sit there and I looked at him. I said, you will be. With the way you work, you will be. Uh, I think uh, I think he captured the entire planet in sport and people who love the essence of it in the final game. I want to show you a clip from that game. I don't know about you guys, yeah. But, but I, I got the chills watching because I'm thinking about you sitting next to him on the gym floor as a rookie and then hugging him right there. Was it as though time was in some weird standstill for you in that moment? It, it really was. It was kind of standstill, but it also was time that went so fast. That was 20 years of us sitting on a bench together in a Laker uniform to all of a sudden I'm standing there in a suit and he's coming off the floor in his last and final game. So it, it was just one of those things that was kind of a, it was an unreal moment. 
you know, to see him come off because I saw this kid when he was 17, 18 years old. And now I'm seeing him as one of the greatest that ever played a game and do something that I don't know will, if it will ever be done in our lifetime. You know, at 37 years old, he has 60 points in his last game. Um, that's kind of a pretty nice way to go out, you know. And uh, he was so exhausted, though. I'm, I'm, yeah, Yogi, the, the nine-minute mark of that game, I was standing there with my coaches, and I said, guys, I can't take him out, you know. And, and it scared me the first four or five minutes because he was 0 for 8, and I was like, I just don't want him to go out this way. And then he caught fire, you know. So with nine minutes left, he's sitting on the bench, and his head is down, and you could just see his chest because he's breathing so hard. And I walk up to him, you know, during the timeout, and I'm about to draw a play, and I said, KB, you all right? And he looked at me and said, I'm all right, I'm all right. That's okay. So we go back out, and there's an automatic timeout at the six-minute mark. And I said to the coaches, I said, man, I don't know if he's going to last six more minutes, but I can't take him out. So I go to him again. I said, KB, you all right? You, you still good? And he looked up. He just kind of looked up at me. <laughs> and so there's one more time out at the three-minute mark. And he was so gassed that I just said, I don't know. I, somebody's got to help him up. You know, it, it's just the heart and the determination and the will that he had to finish that game, um, to me, was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It looked from that clip, just trying to read your lips, you said multiple times, I love you, I love you. Curious what he said to you. I hate you, I hate you. I just, no, I just <laughs> <laughs> no, he said, I love you too. And um, I told him, I think the beginning of that was more of, you know, I was here for your first two, and now I'm here for your last. And I love you. And uh, he was like, I love you too, coach. And, and it was just, um, I said, I got to let him go. You know, we got we to finish this game off. But um, like you said, it, it was just a moment that I'll never forget. And um, it, it was just a special moment. Um, there was clearly a lot of cameras there that night. It looked like an NBA Finals. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, that's how the coverage was that night. It was, it was electric. And everybody was covering Kobe as he walked anywhere, in, out of the locker room, to his car. But I'm curious what it was like for you walking to your car. Because there was also an end of a run for you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't think about it at that time. But um, I went upstairs to kind of celebrate Kobe's last game uh, with my fiance and had a couple of drinks. And then, you know, I made my way back down to the, uh, to the floor just to take a last look at all the uh, graffiti and everything that was on the floor and just kind of reminisce that 48 minutes of what I just witnessed. Um, you know, so I took my time. You know, when I got to the car, there was nobody at the, I mean, nobody at the Staples Center. Everybody had cleared out. The streets were cleared out. It was probably the easiest ride I've had home in a long time. But I just wanted to kind of reminisce and take it all in on what I had witnessed and what I've been a part of. Um, and then I got in the car and just drove with a smile on my face, just thinking about it and just saying, man, what a, what a great way to end the season. Do you ever take a drive through where you grew up? Or take a drive through? I, I still do, yeah. 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 What do, you, what do you think about and, and what do you think? You do a lot of work in the community. It wasn't just that one video. Right. So you did a lot of work. Um, what do you hope to, to leave with people? You know, is it the inspiration to chase a dream? Is it the element of education or the power of that? What do you hope that you leave when you walk out of a room? You know what, Yogi, I hope it's a few things. I, I hope it's that inspiration to uh, be better, uh, be a better person, be a better leader. I hope it's the inspiration to help people that can't help themselves. Um, 
I'm with an organization called Community of Friends, which you know we deal with the homeless situation that we have here in California. Um, and I just hope people just start to give back even more so. You know, that, that's my, my legacy is to try to help people. You know, that's what I want to be known for at the end of the day. Uh, not necessarily uh, Byron Scott the basketball player, but Byron Scott the person. We're going to open it up here in a second, and I know people are going to ask about LeBron's, so I won't do it. Um, I want to ask you about your future. I've read that you want to potentially coach in college, and that's where I dedicated my life. I feel like we've only met for 45 minutes, but I feel like you would kill it with that era of student athletes, and because the era has changed, it's completely changed. I'm curious, where, where do you want to go? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't know as far as uh, where I would like to go college-wise. I just know it, it, it's something I would like to do uh, because, like you just stated, you know, with the young men that we have, the one thing that I saw a lot of in the NBA, especially the last five years, you know, with Cleveland and with uh, with the Lakers, that you, know, you get a lot of these guys that come in the league that are 19 years old, they're 20 years old, and they have no idea how to play. They they really don't. They don't understand the fundamentals of basketball. Uh, I caught myself saying this to guys on numerous occasions doing drills that you should have learned this in high school. And so I think our, our high school coaches are, one of the things I really think is that AAU is almost ruining the game uh, of basketball. These coaches are not in it for the kids, which I think is so important. You know, so by the time I get them, you know, they, they should have stayed in school four years, but obviously a lot of them are going to the pros because they need the money and they need to take care of their family. And no way in the world am I knocking that, but they don't have a clue on how to play. They don't have a clue on what the NBA is all about. They don't have a clue on what life is all about. So uh, I think I can affect, you know, a lot of the young kids because number one, I've been there, I understand, you know, what it is in the NBA, but I also understand how to, uh, work on fundamentals and get guys to understand how to play the game the right way, as Larry Brown used to always say. So um, that's a, that's another passion of mine. If I could get back on the collegiate level, I don't, you know, pros, I don't want to do that. That that's, you know, that's those days are gone. But small time college or so um, so of some sort, I think, would be a lot of fun because those guys would probably stay there three or four years instead of the one and dones. Okay, so lastly, real quick, you've won championships. You've lived in Utah, you lived in LA, you've been on the East Coast, you've been in huge environments. For you, finish the sentence. It all comes down to? Hard work, dedication, determination, uh, you know, pr having pride in what you do. That's it. what it comes down to. Byron Scott, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Thuzio Live and Unfiltered podcast with our guest, Byron Scott. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like more information on how you can attend our live events or book our new virtual ones, visit www.thuzio.com. That's T-H-U-Z-I-O.com. And be sure to follow us on social media at Thuzio.